Hello, and welcome to the November 18th, 2022 edition of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Zankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. A friend of mine recently sent me a link to a YouTube video in which a longtime triathlete became just the latest to proclaim what he said was the imminent failure of the Ironman brand. While this isn't the first time I have heard this doomsday type of prediction, I will say that in this case the video was at least a little more nuanced in how it synthesized the author's view and had some arguments that I think have some merit. The author in this case is one Matty Weitz, a relatively new professional triathlete from Switzerland, and his take on what is going on with Ironman, while still a little too on the pessimistic side of things for my liking, is still notable. Unlike many others who just like to jump up and down and shake their fists in the direction of Andrew Messick, Weitz seems to have an inkling of what he's talking about. As a former businessman of some repute, he outlines what he believes are the threats that the WTC, or World Triathlon Corporation, faces in this moment. Essentially, in his words, as a company that is a corporation owned by a venture capitalists, the WTC has one mission, and really one mission only, and that is to demonstrate continued growth in profits from quarter to quarter. Now, Messick, as the CEO of said corporation, is in a bit of a bind. As the face of the company, he must make all of the proclamations to everyone that satisfies the investors, but tends to rile up his customer base. But he's rarely at liberty to explain why he's doing what he's doing, and because of that, antipathy tends to grow towards him and the brand. In Weitz's version of this story, Iron Man could make things a lot better for itself if it did a better job of communicating with its customers. For example, the sudden increase in race entry fees that we've all noticed likely has a lot to do with the recent pandemic-forced race cancellations and the gigantic losses that the WTC was forced to take on as a result. But rather than explain this to everyone, Iron Man has just been passing the costs along to a public that it assumes will continue to pony up without getting too fussed, because at the end of the day, let's face it, they're still the only game in town. And this is the crux of White's argument, that the time is right for another name or organization to strike but he is a little bit vague on who that could be or whether or not this is even in the offing. Now, I don't necessarily disagree with Matt White's in this matter. I do think that Iron Man has done a pretty poor job of communicating with its customers, and that goes basically back to the beginning of the pandemic. And I do think that the recent fee increases needed to be explained if people are going to be expected to pay them willingly in an indefinite manner. The whole model for success of Ironman racing is to have people race over and over again, and this is less likely if the prices keep rising, costing people out of what is already not a particularly cheap enterprise. As for the notion that another company could jump in right now and undermine the WTC's business, I'm a whole lot less sure of that. Ironman has more than 40 years head start on everyone else. It has a level of name recognition and prestige that would be impossible to match. The PTO, or Professional Triathletes Organization, is really only in it for the pros, despite their efforts to get some age group events going. The Challenge family races have mostly been on the decline, though a few of their options like Daytona and Roth remain quite popular. But any time in the past that they have tried to expand, they've largely been unsuccessful in the face of the much better funded and organized WTC. So where this is going to go is anyone's bet. 
Clearly, as athletes, we need the WTC as much as it needs us, and angrily stomping our feet and hoping for its demise is very much self-defeating. Still, it would be nice if Iron Man had a little self-awareness and situational awareness to recognize the looming recession and how that's going to play with the discretionary expense with triathlon becoming more and more expensive all of the time. I was intrigued enough with Matty Weitz's video that I reached out to him and have invited him onto the podcast as a guest on an upcoming episode, and he's agreed. Until then, I'm really interested in what you think. Is Ironman in jeopardy as a business, or is this just the way of the world right now, and we as athletes are going to have to ride things out for a while, facing higher prices? Send me an email with your thoughts, or join the conversation on the private TriDoc Podcast Facebook group, where you can opine on this or anything else that you hear on the program today or on other episodes. On the show today, I have another medical question to answer that comes to me by way of the Facebook group that I just mentioned. Richard White submitted a question there asking about any association that might be known to exist between oral health and endurance training and racing. Specifically, is there any link between all of the carbohydrate-rich gels and drinks that triathletes and other athletes consume during their workouts and races, and poor outcomes related to their teeth and gums? Well, to help me answer this question, I reached out to a professor of oral surgery in London, England. Ian Needleman has a wealth of experience in this area, and just so happens to be an ultra-runner himself, so he was definitely well-suited to help us find the answer to this question. Our discussion on this subject is coming up very shortly. Later, I have a conversation with Coach Jim Vance. Jim comes from a history of successful performances as an age grouper himself, as well as being a professional triathlete. But he later moved into coaching about 20 years ago and has earned himself a reputation as one of the best in the business at developing talent and producing champions. His current star is Ben Canute, former American Olympian and recent silver medalist at the 70.3 World Championships in St. George, Utah. Jim talks to me about his experience coaching Ben as well as his thoughts about why it is we are seeing such incredible performances in the pro ranks these last couple of years, among other things, and that's coming up a little while later. Before all of that, I want to take a moment, once again, to thank all of my Patreon supporters of this podcast, who have decided that for about the price of a cup of coffee per month, they could sign up to support this program, and in so doing, get access to bonus interviews and other segments that come out about every month. For North American subscribers at the $10 per month level of support, I also have a special thank you gift in the form of a pretty cool BOCO TriDoc podcast running hat. So visit my Patreon site today at patreon.com forward slash Podcast to learn more and possibly become a supporter so that you too can get access and maybe this cool gift as well. And as always, thanks so much in advance just for considering. For the medical segment of the podcast today, I have a question that was submitted to me by a listener on the private Facebook group for this podcast. They wanted to know about a subject that I'm not really an expert on. I often joke with some of my colleagues that I don't go to my dentist for a cough, and yet a lot of people visit me in the emergency department for their dental problems, which is understandable because dentists aren't always as available as we are in the emergency department, and we do our best to take care of the immediate urgent problem before sending them on their way to see a dentist as soon as possible. But there are many dental problems that can occur for triathletes that I frankly just am not a 
proficient or able to really give some answers to. So I've asked someone to come onto the program today to help us sort out some of the things that have come up and have been asked in the Facebook group about dental and oral health. Joining me today is Ian Needleman. Ian is a professor of periodontology and evidence-informed healthcare at the University College in London, the Eastman Dental Institute, and a clinical specialist consultant in periodontics at University College Hospital in London. There, he leads the Center for Oral Health and Performance that was awarded recognition by the International Olympic Committee as part of the United Kingdom's Research Center for Prevention of Injury and Protection of Athlete Health. Ian himself is quite accomplished. He's a Cochrane editor for Periodontal Health, and his research has been awarded prizes by the European Federation of Periodontology, the Royal Society of Medicine, among others. And I'm really excited that he's able to join me today because not only is he a very accomplished dentist, but he's also quite an accomplished athlete. He recently competed in the 2022 World Masters 100K Road Running Championships in Berlin. Ian, thank you so much for being here with me today on the TriDoc Podcast. Jeff, it's a great pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. So I always am able to admit when I am lacking in expertise in something. And so uh, dentistry is one thing that we don't get a lot of education on in medical school. And uh, although it's interesting, in our first year of basics, we learned alongside our dental colleagues. But after that, we branched off and we went about all of the rest of the stuff while the dentists remained pretty much neck up. And now uh, we are often very beholden to our colleagues in oral health when we are faced with uh, dental emergencies or oral problems. So I'm really grateful that uh, someone like yourself is around to answer some of these questions. One of the things that I wanted to open up with is uh, something that I've heard about in the past. Many times when we're on the bike and we're riding along, we reach for a gel pack or even on the run and we use our teeth to tear them open. And I had heard anecdotes that uh, this is not something we should be doing because it's dangerous for our teeth. So what's the truth on that? Is that an urban legend or is there actual truth that this is not something we should be doing? Well, I do it myself because usually there's no other way to open the gels. So the... In theory, you can damage your teeth, but I I would say it's unlikely unless they're already damaged. And I guess this is part part of the reason for this uh, podcast is that... As we've discussed, participating in sport, particularly if you're, you're pretty pretty keen, you, you do a lot of sport, training or competition, can create problems with your teeth and your gums and your oral health. So it, it could create a weakness in the teeth. and We can come in and talk about that. And if you have that weakness in the teeth, yes, in theory, you can damage, you could damage them further by biting onto gels. Um, but I think the main issue is not so much biting on the gel packs, but actually managing the uh, the potential damage on the teeth in the first place. All right, so that's good to know. Have at it, folks. Rip open those gels with your teeth, and uh, as long as your teeth are safe going in, you should be okay. Now, of course, the contents of those gels is probably what you're alluding to because within those gel packs are a lot of sugar. All of that sugar we're taking in, Do we need to worry about what that's doing to our teeth? I mean, we've been taught since we were kids, we have to be careful with sugary sweets. And now here we are over the course of an Ironman or a longer event, just taking in gobs and gobs of the stuff. So how much do we need to worry that that's doing damage to our teeth? Okay, so we have to accept that that sugars, carbohydrates are key 
to performance and training in endurance sport. There's no way of getting away from that. So if we accept that, uh, and I agree with everything you said, that all those sugars are one of the major causes of dental problems. So what that means is, as endurance athletes, we have to take on an increased risk. We can't pretend it doesn't exist. And we've just got to manage that. And there are lots of ways of doing it. On the bike, it may be easier, actually, than, than as, a, as a runner, as I am. So on a bike, you may be able to have a kind of a two-bottle strategy, for instance. So after you use a gel or a sugar-carbohydrate sports drink, you could rinse your mouth with water straight afterwards. That would be one way of, of doing it. Another way is to minimise the use of sugars outside of what you need for performance and for training and I guess many of us have a sweet tooth and we like to continue that that sugary activity after uh, what we really need. I, I would suspect a lot of your listeners are actually pretty good on their nutrition and pretty good of their out of training and competition nutrition particularly thinking about a food first approach rather than than, than simple sugars so I suspect a lot of your, your listeners already think about this so there are a number of other things I just come back and re-emphasize, own the increased risk, because if you're serious about uh, triathlon or any other sport, you're also serious that you're at risk of other injuries. And in fact, what we, our concept for oral health is it's just another overuse injury. So we're used to managing it in that way, but we're not used to thinking about it in this way. So what can you do? Well, if you Again, if you're serious, you probably consult with a physical therapist some, from time to time or regularly. You probably wouldn't do that for your, for your oral health, but you would do for, with your dentist. So think about your dentist not as just somebody that fixes you. Think about them as somebody that's going to help you with prehab, with strength and conditioning, um, and rehab if necessary, but hopefully you'll avoid that. So what does that mean in practical terms? It means seeing your dentist at least twice a year if you are a serious athlete because of your increased risk. And when I talk about increased risk, what Jeff alluded to is we've done a, I've done a lot of studies in elite sport and finding consistently that elite athletes are at increased risk. So we just have to accept that. So own that, see your dentist regularly, explain to them what you do and ask for coaching and support. So there are things that you could do, for instance, to mitigate the risk because you will continue to need to take on the sugars. And some of those things are, for instance, there are high fluoride toothpastes, which in many countries are not available over the counter. They have to be prescribed uh, by the dentist or the pharmacist, or you can sometimes buy them at, at the dentist. And they're fantastic at increasing the uh, strength of the enamel and helping you uh, mitigate that risk by prevention. Yeah, that's, that's a very good way of doing it. We've talked about if you need to modify your diet to try and take out the sugars outside of what you really need. And of course, when we're talking about high fluoride toothpaste, we're actually talking about using it. Yeah, so it doesn't do much good when it's still in the tube, as far as I can tell. So that means brushing with it twice a day. And that's 
really important. And if you're a particularly high risk, and that would be marked by or indicated by the fact that you are still developing tooth decay, despite all of these things, and your dentist will be able to identify that, you should also increase to having a fluoride mouth rinse in the middle of the day. And after each of those things, toothbrushing with fluoride, high fluoride, twice a day, mouth rinsing in the middle of the day, you would not rinse your mouth out with water. Because what we know about fluoride in protection is that it works on the surface. And if you want it to work, you need to give it time. So if you brush your teeth, and what a lot of people do is they have a cup of water and they rinse around to get rid of the toothpaste and thinking they're doing a good thing getting rid of the bacteria, actually you're washing away the goodness. So, so the, the phrase that we use is spit, don't rinse. So those are a number of very practical things that you can do at home and how you can build a, a, a better relationship with your dentist. That's really great points. I want to emphasize, especially the idea of preventive dental care, of seeing your dentist even when you don't have problems to get cleanings and, and keeping on top of that. I recently had a guest who was on the program talking about a dental problem he had leading up to one of his races. I can't attest to whether or not he was seeing his dentist regularly. I have no idea. But it's just one example of how a dental problem can come up just prior to a race and derail all your best laid plans. And by having good preventive dental care in advance of that, you can potentially mitigate those issues by catching them in advance or dealing with them before they they arise. So really, really important points there. And I uh, thank you for bringing those up. I was just going to say, Jeff, in terms of the so you bring up a really important point. There's the timing of those visits. So what we normally say with things like team sports is have one of your checkups in the preseason and another of those checkup at least a month before a major competitive event. Right. Yeah. Because you don't want to have to find something that needs to be dealt with just a week before yeah. an event and then have to deal with the after effects. Yeah. I want to get back to the uh, the concept of the sugars within the gels. Most of the products that endurance athletes are using contain complex carbohydrates. And I wonder, is there a difference in terms of tooth decay related to the simple sugars versus these more complex sugars? Or are they all the same in terms of their risk? Oh, that's that's a really Good question, taking a deep dive in. So there are differences, but I, I think for the pattern of use that most people uh, will experience, the, the, uh, the impact on oral health will be the same. One thing that we also need to talk about, I don't know if you want to go onto it now, is not just the sugars, but the acidity of the gels and of the sports drinks particularly yeah sure go ahead so and that, that that's something which is has, has received much less interest awareness rather outside of of dentistry so um, there's uh, almost an epidemic of a condition called erosive tooth wear or dental erosion and that's not caused by the bacteria at all it's caused by the acidity of foods and drinks. Sometimes it's caused by eating disorders, something like bulimia or silent reflux, where somebody has reflux from their stomach into their mouth, but actually may not even know about it. So basically acids on a frequent basis. And of course, what that will do, even without bacteria, is wear away the enamel. And what you might notice if you've got this is that the teeth just start to look a little bit different. If you look at your incis your front teeth, your incisors, they don't look as if they're quite all those really nice uh, characteristics. 
So they'll look a bit flatter in, in kind of shape and, and shade. They might start to look a bit yellower as the enamel is being lost over the surface. And in fact, the underlying dentine is showing through. So that's caused, as I say, by uh, acidic uh, intakes. And again, I, I would use exactly the same preventive strategy. Talk to your dentist and prime your dentist to be your, your coach. Get them to look for signs of it, because in the early stages, you may not notice it, but your dentist can spot this as an early stage. And the similar kinds of preventive things that we've talked about so far will also be very successful for dental erosion. Okay. I have an unrelated question now, and it's something that I myself have experienced and, and some of my listeners have asked about. And this is in some events, and it doesn't happen all the time, but it happens on occasion. I have noticed, and so have some other people I have spoken to, that after consuming a lot of these concentrated energy drinks, the mouth can become really sensitive yeah. to the point that it's almost a, what I would characterize as stomatitis, like a, a feeling of inflammation of the mucosa. And I've never been sure if it has to do with what I'm drinking or if it's because I'm mouth breathing the whole time over these events. But it becomes to the point that the mouth is so painful that it becomes hard to drink or eat after for a period of time. And then it resolves over a, a number of hours. But it's, it's something that I've experienced on a couple of different occasions. And I was wondering, I've, I've asked around some of my colleagues and not been able to find a satisfactory explanation. So I was wondering if you had one and could maybe enlighten us. Yeah, uh, it's a really good question. And very few people have identified this. So um, I think there are two things going on. One is exactly, as you say, a kind of acute, in other words, sort of short term stomatitis, inflammation of the lining of the mouth. And that's being caused by or the, exactly what you've just suggested, the mouth drying. And when you dry your mouth and you lose saliva, you lose the protective effects. So saliva is fantastic at not just lubricating your mouth. And we all know that feeling of trying to get down some food in a long event when your mouth is dry. It's almost impossible. But also there are many constituents which protect against chemicals which may dry which may further dry out the mouth or which may irritate the mouth and they might also be an acidic element to that as well so that's the kind of acute and what you can do about it is a similar kind of strategy if you can rinse your mouth out if you can do that straight after an intake of a, of a gel or a sports drink, that should help you to minimize that. I wouldn't suggest you're going to be able to eliminate it because what you're doing, what we do as endurance athletes is really challenge our bodies. Yeah. So I think it's unrealistic to think you could eliminate it, but I, I would expect you'll be able to delay the onset and hopefully reduce the severity of it. That's the acute one. What we've also encountered actually quite recently with a competitor in a multi-day event in the UK was stomatitis for a different reason. And we've since, since come across others. And that's because of a, a yeast or candidal infection in the mouth. So again, that's probably related to a number of things like the mouth drying. But also what we know about endurance training and on, on particularly on multi-day endurance events, probably some reduction in immunity caused by that, uh, participating in that event, the stress, the reduced sleeping, 
plus the physical activity. So what, we, what we've seen is um, an overgrowth of the yeast, the candida uh, in the mouth. And that became apparent with some very obvious, first of all, redness and then some white patches. And the way we've managed that in that athlete, particularly with some success, is first of all, ensure that there's no underlying health condition, because there are also other predisposing factors for oral candidiasis, such as low iron and low vitamin B12. And again, in in very active athletes, both of those things can be found. So, so eliminate the predisposing, if there are predisposing factors, get some blood tests from your uh, physician. And then for this athlete in particular, what we tried was to give some, uh, an oral antifungal in the few days before the event. And then during the event to use a topical antifungal on a, a four, roughly four times a day, every, roughly every six hours schedule as well as trying to look after the mouth with those things we've already talked about, like trying to make sure uh, they're hydrated. And it certainly had an impact. Again, it didn't eliminate things completely, but it made the difference between this individual having such severe symptoms that they really couldn't, it was affecting severely their ability to eat, which clearly in an endurance event is a huge problem, reduce the severity of the symptoms markedly. So I think we have a very clear indication that the, um, the uh, our sort of hypothesis here was correct and the intervention was certainly very successful. So there's two different things. Probably that, that um, yeast candidal infection is more appropriate for very long events and multi-day, but the, the shorter, maybe um, over a 6, 12-hour period, it may be more that acute stomatitis. I hope that that explains it. Absolutely. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I think that it it leaves me with a little bit of pause just trying to understand how to mitigate it. Because as I said, it's not something that I've experienced repeatedly. It's just once in a while. And it is very short-lived, but it's painful. So I will have to uh, pay more attention to trying to keep hydrated throughout. And it never happens during the race. It always happens afterwards when I'm done, I notice it. So yeah, I'll have to pay close attention to that and see if I can tie something that might be going on. Hopefully I don't experience it again anytime soon. I have one final question for you. And that is regarding some of the research that has been out there over the past, I don't know, decade or so that ties oral health to other systems. For example, there's been suggestions that poor oral health can be linked to cardiovascular disease. I I wonder where is the status of that kind of research right now? And what should older athletes be thinking about when they think about maintaining their oral health as a means of trying to prevent other kinds of health problems? Okay, so Jeff, it's, it's been a confusing time because there's been quite a lot of research, quite a volume of it, and, uh, and not always well reported. So we're very secure in having a very clear link now between inflammation in the mouth, particularly related to gum disease, gum health, and diabetes. And in fact, just two months ago now in the UK, for the first time, the national body that provides guidance for doctors and and health professionals has issued guidance saying, if you have type 2 diabetes, go and see your dentist. If If you have gum disease picked up, have that treated because by treating the gum disease, 
you will improve your diabetes control. The mechanism, because it's probably relevant to cardiovascular disease and neurodegenerative diseases and cancer and many other conditions and pneumonia and, and, and several others, is, is overall twofold. One is the inflammation route. And of course, there's huge interest and understanding about inflammation being one of the key drivers of health and disease cardiovascular, as I say, neurodegenerative changes, cancer. And what we know is that people with marked inflammation in their mouths, and that's that's very commonly people who have gum disease, if, uh, if you look at that gum disease, you can detect raised inflammation in the rest of the body. And similarly, if you treat that inflammation in the mouth, uh, effectively, you can reduce the inflammation in the body. And that's one of the main mechanisms how we think that, that uh, sugar control, uh, uh, glycemic control in diabetes is, is benefited from this. There's another element to this, which is bacterial, as you might expect. A lot of interest and excitement looking at the oral microbiome. And the microbiome, of course, is that the sort of entirety of what of, of the life in the mouth rather than just looking at individual bacterial or viral species and, and what we know about that is that the oral microbiome has both protective and damaging effects on health so the, one of the protective effects which is which is still not so well known is that the oral microbiome is one of the key drivers for starting to control blood pressure so when we take in when we take in dietary nitrates, the bacteria in our mouths begin the process of reducing those dietary nitrates into nitrites, which then be eventually become converted into nitric acid, which is a key driver of opening up blood vessels and controlling our, our blood pressure. It's clearly not the only important component of, of controlling blood pressure, but there's a very very clear example of how of how the bacteria in the mouths contribute to health. Can they contribute to the disease? Absolutely. Again, almost every system we look at, there are contributions, negative contributions for bacteria, and it may be very broadly the oral microbiome in a process that we give a jargon term called dysbiosis, which is a kind of ecology. If you imagine a, a pond where we have a really nice, healthy flora of, of plants and animals, in, in our mouths, if we can maintain that kind of normal, healthy flora, that's uh, that's great. There are factors which can make it uh, can turn it into a dysbiosis, meaning that the the microbiome becomes one which is going to be favouring development of diseases, not only in the mouth but in the rest of the body. And factors which can trigger that are not looking after things well. So it's a real we haven't really talked about gum health and. and and cleaning as such, removing the bacteria. But what we don't want to do is sterilize our mouths with mouth rinses. What we do want to do is reduce, keep the amount of bacteria down at the gum line, particularly to a very low level with good toothbrushing twice a day and cleaning between the teeth at least once a day, either using floss, which is that stringy stuff, or even better, get your hygienist or dentist to teach you how to use those little brushes, which are even more effective. And what we're doing there is simple ecology. We are farming, we're doing a kind of farming, nurturing of our mouths. We're keeping the, the type of bacteria to the ones which do us good 
and preventing the build-up of the, the bad ones. So both the drivers for inflammation and the drivers for this change in the bacteria would explain why the oral health is, uh, affects general health. But clearly, looking at you, Jeff, my very my very sensitive diagnostic skills would tell me that your head is connected to the rest of your body. So that would also suggest that what happens in the rest of your body will affect your, your mouth and your oral health as well. Well, I, this has been just a tremendous conversation, Dr. Needleman. I can't thank you enough for it. It's been very educational for me, and I'm sure it's going to be very educational and helpful for my listeners. Just one more reminder of how important it is to take care of our teeth, take care of our oral health, not just for the preserving our our mouths from cavities and and all of the other problems that can crop up and derail our training and racing, but also for our overall health. So really, really helpful, really insightful. And I can't tell you again, how much I appreciate your participating in the podcast today. This has been a fascinating conversation. Dr. Ian Needleman joined me today from University College in London, where he is a professor of periodontology. And I look forward to potentially encountering you again someday on the field of play, where he is a very avid runner. And uh, who knows, maybe we can get him into triathlon at some point in the future. Dr. Needleman, thanks again for joining me today on the TriDoc Podcast. Huge pleasure, Jeff. Thank you very much. My guest on the podcast today is Jim Vance. Jim is best known as the coach of American professional triathlete Ben Canute. Jim is in his seventh year guiding Canute and during that time helped him amass two silver medals at the 70.3 World Championships, most recently on October 29th of this year in St. George, as well as fourth and sixth at previous 70.3 Worlds. He's also the first male to win four consecutive Escape from Alcatraz titles, multiple 70.3 victories, a World Cup silver medal, multiple podiums at the Mixed Relay World Championships, and victories in New York City, Boston, St. Anthony's, and the Island House Triathlon, all under Jim's guidance. Jim also works for Today's Plan, helping coaches learn the tools he and the team have developed to expand and improve their coaching results and businesses. But today, he's taken a few moments to sit down with me and discuss triathlon as well as coaching. And uh, I can't thank him enough for joining me today on the TriDoc Podcast. Welcome, Jim. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me. It's cool to be on a new podcast and check out what you guys are doing here. So, Jim, give us a sense. Most people are probably unfamiliar with your name. I, I know that we don't always have a good sense of who's coaching who. So who is Jim Vance? What's your history in the sport? And how did you come to be a coach of Ben Canute? Sure. Well, I came into the sport as a as a runner turned mountain biker and a triathlete. Um, so uh, that was, uh, you know, I was a high runner in high school, got recruited, went to the University of Nebraska. Uh, walked on there, left with a full ride, and uh, was able to just be, uh, you know, exposed to some some amazing talent and uh, just a real high performance environment there. And I really loved it. Uh, for example, my roommate was an Olympic semifinalist in the fifteen hundred at uh, at uh, at the Atlanta Olympics. And so, you know, and I and I wasn't a bad runner myself. You know, I think I went like. 409 for the 1500 or sorry for the mile uh 1500 was like 352 and then i was like a steeplechaser when 855 so solid and people generally are impressed with that but then when i tell people 
Yeah, but my roommate ran three thirty five at the Olympics, so I'm he's he's crossing the finish line, and I haven't even rounded the last turn. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, it was a great place to kind of learn and be exposed to some really talented and amazing athletes. Um, and then uh, after college, I moved to San Diego. That's kind of where I got exposed to uh, to triathlon. But I was really into mountain biking out here, and so my first real foray into triathlon was Xterra. And in 2004, I was the Xterra age group world champion overall. And uh, I really liked Xterra because it gave me a chance to for a mass start against a lot of pros. And I knew that I, uh, I really wanted to test myself there. Um, fast forward to 2005, I was full on coaching while balancing a teaching career and racing. And uh, I was age group world champion, the ITU age group world's. Uh, in Hawaii that year. And then I kind of left teaching, went into professional racing, sold my condo, kind of used that to fund fund things, moved in with my girlfriend at the time, my now wife of, geez, many years, uh, 15 years. And so, yeah, it was uh, a was great kind of lead in. And I was coached by Joe Friel, Peter Reed, uh, and Greg Welch. So, I had a lot of different uh, different kind of perspectives. And towards the end of the career is when Friel was working with me a lot. And, of course, he was big into, you know, the technology side and, uh, you know, power meters and everything else and their training peak software at the time. So that was kind of where I really started to realize, man, I've got a lot of firsthand knowledge of all, of, all of this new technology and how to use it and, and I was having a lot of success. I, I was third at Florida in my first Ironman. I went 8.37. But a couple of years later, I was just tired physically and mentally. And I was I started to realize the sport was getting a lot tougher. And uh, I felt like coaching was my real calling. And uh, I was continuing to kind of turn down some really great coaching opportunities just for the sake of racing. And I finally realized if I wanted more stability in my life in a long-term plan, I was probably smarter to just step away and uh, really focus on the coaching aspect. Um, so I started a, even a junior program in 2010 here in San Diego that really worked on like junior elite racing and things. And that's a couple years later, that's where I really started to uh, come across uh, Ben Canute, this little youngster who was kind of crushing it. And my business partner was was his coach, Adam Zuko, and Adam had done an amazing job. Was running a an incredible uh, junior program out of Chicago, suburban Chicago, called Multisport Madness. And on that, you had Ben Canute, you had Kevin McDowell, who just uh, you know came was a medalist at the Tokyo Olympics in the mixed relay for the U.S. And you also had Lucas Forsbickus, who was an amazing talent before his unfortunate crash. Um, I mean, at 18 years of old, there was already talk. Let's just put him on the Olympic team and let him go because he was a hell of a runner. And then in 2016, I uh, Ben had gone to the Olympics, and uh, you know, I had kind of had what I would say was a seat at the table. So you know, Ben had a number of advisors, and so one of the things was you know I was sent the plan going into the Rio Games, and I really didn't like the plan at all. <laughs> I, was, I was not a fan of what they were trying to do, but I didn't want to be negative in his build. So I just was, I just kind of 
gave my feedback and just said, I'm okay, I'll, I'll hold up, hold back. And then obviously things did not go quite like Ben wanted at the games. Yes. He got out in the front and, and, uh, but eventually, I mean, I think he faded to like 25th or something. So yeah, he was looking to make a change and he had asked Zuko what Zuko thought and Zuko recommended me. So he was in Kona in 2016 following the Olympics there. And we just had some, uh, coffee and, really for about an hour talked and I uh, just kind of laid out what I thought would be a, a way to accomplish his goals, which he said he wanted to win a medal at the Tokyo games in the mixed relay. And he wanted to try and win a 70.3 world title. So that's kind of where it all began. And uh, the irony is that those two goals were so far apart. <laughs> it's like, I think I jokingly told him, why don't we go to the track and field world championships and try to win the hundred meter dash in the marathon. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, uh, luckily, uh, somebody told me the other day that, you know, it's impressive what the Norwegians are doing, but you and Canute, you really started the whole, you know, racing across all distances pretty well thing first. <laughs> and I was like, Oh yeah, we, we did. <laughs> well, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't take the moment right now to congratulate you on Ben's accomplishment. When we're recording it, it's it's just this past weekend. How does that feel as a coach? I mean, I know how it feels as an athlete to do these events, but and I know as a coach how it feels to watch my own athletes achieve their goals. But it's a whole different level when your athletes out there leading the way on the run for a lot of it, and then finishing on in the silver medal position. How does that feel? Yeah, that's a great question. I think I would answer that question entirely different based upon when you asked me it mm-hmm. <laughs> during that day. If you asked me before the race, you know, in the swim versus early on the bike versus late on the bike versus early on the run versus late on the run, I probably would have had a, you know, it was such a roller coaster of a day. Uh, you know, I knew that he was very, very fit. Um, probably the fittest he's ever been under me. Um, I think if his run was definitely the best it's ever been, uh, that was without question. His bike was at, at about where I would say he was almost right on point with the highest I've ever seen him under me. And then his swim was maybe just a hair off. Um, so I felt like, but I felt like it, it was good. Like everything was there and it's just, you know, this is, I think one of the hardest parts for some athletes to, to handle and deal with is that you can do everything right. You can show up on race day, fully prepared, you know, you're training with perfect, you're fitter than ever, you're faster than ever and still not get the result you want. And, uh, you know, just cause you work hard doesn't mean it's, well, you, you get it. <laughs> like everybody's working hard. So you know, you always, I think in the, that race, you're always kind of looking up and just thinking like, oh God, please, let's have this go smoothly. Let's have something go our way. (laughs) Especially a year because uh, I think anybody who's followed Ben this year would say that it was hands down his worst year ever outside, you know, coming into that race. No one was talking about Ben in that race. And we, we knew that, but, uh, we really knew how fit he was. And so, before the race, there was, especially by him, I noticed there was this just calmness all week. There was no fear. He wasn't, you know, uh, he was just very matter of fact and very businesslike. Um, there really was no sign of nervousness. He, 
I could tell that he he had basically already accepted the result before the race started. Like, I've done everything I can. Everything has gone right. I've peaked at the exact right time. I'm just going to go out and execute and where that lands me, that lands me. And, and if he got, you know, if he found himself in a chance to fight for the win, he was going to fight for it. Um, and so, I mean, last year he was sixth, but he was only 82 seconds off the podium. So, you know, that's four places that are stretched over, you know, a little over 80 seconds. That's, I mean, that's close in a, in a darn near, you know, it was a, over a three and a half hour race. <laughs> that's uh, when you think about it. So I knew we were, we should be better, but, you know, we had the Norwegians were that much better. We had, you know, all these guys that have kind of made the next step, the Frederick Funks, the Mika Newts, the, the, uh, geez, who's Magnus Ditlev. So you just, you don't know. And, uh, but I'd say, you know, as the race went on, I, you know, I had some moments of pride, just very proud. Like he's doing exactly, you know, and he's representing himself out there because, He's, he's very much like, if you saw it, he, you know, he, he feeds off the emotion of the energy of the crowds. And I don't, I don't think it's any surprise that his two best performances were, were both on U.S. soil, <laughs> you know? So, uh, yeah. So that, I would say at times, even I, I almost got a little bit emotional late in the race. Cause I'm thinking, hell, he might pull this off. <laughs> like, so, uh, so yeah, I, I would say everything from calmness to a little bit of nerves to just excitement as the as especially as that bike went on. And when I when he was when he was still there on Snow Canyon, I knew that all right, this this is this is his day. He is definitely there. So uh, yeah, I, I want to shift uh, just uh, to a few weeks earlier because I'm really interested. Uh, I've spoken to a few coaches and I'm really interested to get your insight. Uh, and that's back to Kona for a second where Ben was not. Uh, were you surprised to see the results coming in in Kona where so many of the top finishers really just obliterated the previous record on that course? I can't say that I'm, that I'm all that surprised. Um, the main reason being like, if you, if you, Go back. When did the records really start to drop? And that's when they made the change of moving the men's and, and women's pros to start from 7 a.m. with the age groupers to giving them their much earlier start. Now they start about 625 in the morning. So that 35 minute window has dramatically changed the conditions on the bike for these men and even in the water. So, uh, you know, I'm not surprised to see that because of that, it just, you know, it even makes for cooler temperatures in the run. When you really think about it, that, that half hour earlier, just things don't have the time to heat up as much around. And, you know, so uh, it may not seem like a lot, but it, it certainly matters, especially when early on in the bike is probably the hardest part of the race. Uh, when you get out of the water and you hammer that bike. So if the temperatures are that much hotter, and things athletes can, you know, really like they can pay for that early effort through town and the hills and things. Um, then you take into account the, just the, the improvements in technology, rolling resistance. We have wider tires, um, you know, aerodynamics have been gotten so much better. Um, athletes know the rules better. 
they've, you know, for the longest time, it was a debate about whether or not there was a draft benefit uh, among those leaders. Now, no one, no one doubts that or questions that it's been proven. So I think more guys are sticking to that plan and trying to leverage groups on the road legally. So, uh, you know, you, you get that. And then obviously training's gotten better. You know, I also, I also think when, you know, we, I work for a company called today's plan and, and we say that a market without competition has no innovation. And so, you know, I think what you've, what you've seen from the competition that the Norwegians have come in and created and even the Danes now with Ditlev and some of these other guys is, you know, and other Germans is you just seen that, that people have had to innovate in the way that they, everything from equipment to training practices to, uh, to race strategies. So it's, uh, it's become, uh, it's become, you know, a rising tide that lifts all boats. So I'm not surprised. I think that point you make about the half hour can't be overstated. Uh, I know it, this was my second time in Kona. Uh, in 2018, that was the last year they had a mass start where all the men started together at, I think we started at 710 or 715. And this year it was an age group start and my age group started at 837. And I was in much better shape this year. My bike power was 15 watts normalized higher than it was in 2018. And my bike split was 10 minutes slower. And I weighed less this year as well. And my coach was asking me, why do you think that was? And I said, I started <laughs> over an hour, 15 minutes later. I mean, we got all the wind. Uh, all the guys who started earlier had no wind. I mean, it's not like it was crazy windy. It certainly wasn't. It wasn't the famous uh, howling winds or anything. But by the time I got to Waikoloa, the pro men were on their way back. And there still wasn't any significant winds. But when I got to Javi, climbing up to Javi, the crosswinds were there. And when we turned around, there were significant headwinds. And we came back all the way from the, the climb out of, uh, I can never say it, Kauai High or whatever it's called. Uh, once we got, uh, yeah, once we got back onto the, the Queen K, we were headwind the whole back, the whole way back. So even though my power was higher, my weight was lower. You know, I ended up having 10 minutes more. And uh, I, I think that's a, a really great observation that that time is a big deal. But I think there's a lot else. Uh, you mentioned how there's a lot of innovation. And I read your great line in Triathlete uh, about your lack of deference to the Norwegians and the run up to St. George. But I also know in listening, and for those of you who haven't read the line, basically it had something to do with uh, how everyone was bowing down to the Norwegians, but Ben and, and Jim were like, F that. Nonetheless, I, I know that you and Ben, like everyone else, have taken notice of the phenomenon that is the Gustav and Christian show over the last two years. They have really been something else. I'm curious, you know, when you talk about that innovation, do you think that they're doing anything differently or is this just to amazing athletes, or is it a combination of those things? And, and what do you think we can learn from them? That's a great question. Uh, first of all, you know, I think, I think what separates them is they've been in a system for a real long time. Um, you know, David Tilbury Davis just tweeted out something that I know he referenced kind of my, myself and so did Tim Hemming, uh, uh a reporter for triathlete who wrote that article you're talking about where um, the bold brash story behind Ben or something like that. And 
uh, climbed a 70.3 world podium. The big thing about them or that David Tilbury Davis said was that, you know, these, a lot of these athletes that you're seeing have success lately. They've been with coaches, the same coach, they're, they're same coaches for many years now. So, you know, there's, there's a benefit to that, that most people overlook when you've been in a system and you can, you know, you can, I mean, there's just certain advantages to being in a system over time that you know what you, you know, know what to expect of your body in a lot of ways. And the Norwegians have been in a, in a, in a system that's relatively high volume with a lot of threshold work. I mean, I would say that that probably sums up what they do and they're either spending a lot of time right below it or a pretty good amount of time at it. They spend, I would say, probably only a little time above it because they're able to do that. So, and, and truth be told, Ben at times has been like, Hey, maybe we need to start looking at what they're doing and things. But the truth is that that was never my system with Ben. And so, and the irony is that, you know, we go back to it. Ben had a, outside of that performance in St. George, it was a terrible year by, I mean, he, he started off the year great with a third at Miami, probably could have been second and then got fifth at Oceanside, you know, when Jackson Laundry kind of won and it was that sprint for second between Sanders and Rudy Von Berg. And then fourth was Brownlee, fifth was Canute right there. So St. Anthony's, he had a big lead, but he couldn't, he got out sprinted at the finish. So it was just a real frustrating year. And obviously the PTO races this summer went to crap. I don't think he finished inside the top 20 in any of those races. So for us, it was a lot about, we we had to assess what went wrong. Well, the main thing that went wrong for us this year was that Ben changed everything. Ben wanted things changed. And and I know that it was coming from a, 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 a place of wanting to innovate, but it was too much change. He wanted, because he, he was leaving ITU and draft legal racing, no more Olympics pursuit. So he was like, Jim, I can focus on the races that I want, all these non-drafting, you know, 70.3s, the PTO. And so he was like, we, we probably need to do a lot more volume. So I kind of won't change my uh, approach. and went more to like a recovery on demand. And the problem is that I would think he's, he doesn't need rest. And then lo and behold, a f- about five days later, I realized, oh, crap, he didn't need rest. Now we're in trouble. And it was this constant fall off a cliff type of thing. And and then sickness kind of would come into play. And, oh, man, it was just, just a mess of a year in that regard. And so finally, after Alcatraz, he, he got on some antibiotics. We got over some something he had then, too. And then I was just like, you know what? We're going to go back to what worked, and we're just going to tweak it. And so we did that, and lo and behold, he, he knew he was getting better all summer, but he just really couldn't express it on the race course very well. I'd say in the four to six weeks leading in to St. George, it became very clear, like, whoa, all right, here we are. It's finally clicking. So I think to say, yes, the, the Norwegians have have kind of changed the game with their approach. It's been different, and it's been successful. Uh, I guess we'll see how successful it is now that they're trying to step back and go the other way into a pursuit for Paris, both of them. No one's ever been able to do that. We'll see. Uh, it's 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 interesting. But uh, I think that when you have all these guys that are coming up, it's 
inevitably, I look at 70.3 worlds. I knew that Gustav Eden was not going to be a threat. You could tell in his interviews, he, his confidence was not there. He, he, he was just his body language, the whole way he acted. I was like, that guy is not ready to race. And even Christian had said on his Babbitt show um, that he said, well, I'm a bit more optimistic than Gustav. So he even admitted that Gustav was pessimistic. And he sensed that too. And the real thing was, it, it, it was amazing that Christian was still able to perform like he was. I mean, I don't know if people know this, but when, when they came out of that golf course and I had yelled, uh, so I, ironically, I, I was looking for a way to motivate Ben and really just kind of, it's kind of that whole Rocky Balboa thing where you see he's not a machine, he's a man. And I wanted him to be more of the hunter and he had, but Christian was still there and there was about 5k to go. And I, I just recognized that if this was a mixed relay, Ben would absolutely expect that he would beat Christian. He wouldn't even like, he, he would absolutely be a hundred percent confident he could beat Christian. So I just wanted to reframe this race in his mind that, Hey, mixed relay. So I just leaned out and said, mixed relay, get it to a mixed relay distance, which means about 2K. And and Christian looked at me when I said that, looked at Ben, looked back at me real quick. And I, th- and I think he was like, oh, shit, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> like, and and then he but I think he also said he just heard mixed relay. And he's like, oh, yeah, we have like 20 minutes to go or less than 20 minutes to go. That is like a mixed relay. Well, hell, I'm going to go. And so he goes and he runs 1.1 miles at right around three minutes per K, 301 per K, 450 mile pace. Ben ran 502 mile pace for for 1.1 from 10.4 to 11.5 in that race, miles, that late. And he, and he got gapped by about 20-some seconds. In that. <laughs> I mean, that, that tells you the level that Christian is at and the, and the Norwegians. And we knew we would need some help. We knew that they'd probably need to be tired, but we felt like, okay, well, it's definitely, definitely Gustav tired. And then the race went exactly as we could have hoped with Christian basically doing most of the work and driving the pace, which number one, would we, uh, we thought, okay, well, that should wear him down even more. And uh, he just, he's just pulling Benrod along and these other guys, so it's great. And and some people think that he wasn't going hard. Let me tell you, Frederick Funk and Magnus Ditlev are probably two of the best cyclists in the sport. And that both of them were like, we were on the, on our rivet, on the rivet, like at our max, Christian was just going so hard. There was no way in hell we were going around. To lead. <laughs> like, so, 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 so yeah, again, so, so what, amazing. what do we take from them? I mean, I, I, I get the point that they have a system and they've been in this system for a while. I'm tired of hearing newbies and back of the Packers tell me about 80, 20. I'm, I'm just over that. I mean, this is the, <laughs> this is the opposite. This is almost like 80, 20 threshold. I, I'm just, is there anything we can learn? Is there anything that I, as a coach can tell my athletes, Hey, this is what we're, you know, and obviously this isn't appropriate for every athlete. I, I think this is probably something that we can think of for our top performing athletes, but is there anything that we can take from this? I mean, this is, it's, it's incredible what we've seen over the last two years. Well, I think, I think all athletes can get stronger. Just, 
just really strong. But you have to look to it. What's your athletic type, your body type? I, I think people would describe Ben probably as more of a diesel engine. I can tell you when he would go over 600 watts in surges in draft legal races, he was in trouble. But keep keep those surges at 400 watts, 500 watts, and he could handle it, and he could still run close to his maximum ability off the bike, or some athletes can't. So you always need to look for ways to to get stronger. I, I don't. I'll be honest. I don't know enough about the Norwegian system fully to say. Oh, hey, everyone can do a lot more threshold than they think or because I don't know how much they do. But I do know that they've been in that system for a long time and it is it is uh, it is different. My system's different, too, though. And obviously it's been successful. I think probably if, if I were to say what can someone learn from our system and Ben's is that we take we always try to look for ways to reduce training risk. We take a session and I, I'm always like, okay, how can I make sure that this doesn't set us back? We do a lot of walk run, believe it or not. Ben's mileage is even when he's doing about 60 miles a week running, he's at about, uh, I would say 40 of that is probably walk run, either nine minute run, one minute walk or four minute run, one minute walk, depending somewhere in that range. And some people think, oh, we, runners don't walk. Well, you do walk. You you probably walk during an interval break, an interval workout. I'd say that for us, so let me step back and make it a big bigger picture thing. Ben has had one injury in seven years with me. One. That, that came from training. And I don't even know that you could say it came from training. It happened in the very last race of the year in 2018. It was at, it was at uh, Mallorca in Super League in the final race of the year and the championship where he had to run through sand to re-enter for like some sort of enduro swim, bike, run, swim, bike, run, swim, bike, run, I think. And he was running into the water and he felt a little pop and turns out he kind of tore his adductor about, about 25%. And so he couldn't finish the race, but that was our only injury we've ever had. And in now almost seven full years of working with Ben, we've been, geez, uh, He's missed zero starts on races. We'd never put a race on the calendar and not made the start line. Mm. So I think the takeaway for athletes should be, wow, there's, there is a right way to do things. Because I see so many athletes just consistently injuring themselves, trying a pace on race day that they're just not prepared to do. So I'd say that those are probably the bigger takeaways, I think, from our system that people can Yeah, and I think you'd probably agree that the right way is not necessarily one way. It's the right way for an individual athlete. Oh, 100%. And I'm not going to come on here and pump all sunshine and tell you, oh, every athlete under me has had the same success as Ben. That's not true. I've had athletes that have failed under me. I have. And... Uh, some athletes that I really liked and really wanted to see have success and did everything I asked and still my system just didn't quite work for them. It's one thing to train a certain way. It's another thing to commit to a system. But again, like you say, it's got to be the right system for that person. And we all come into this sport with our own unique histories, whether you came in as a runner or a swimmer or none of those. I mean, I don't think Sam Long was any of those yeah. things. I'm looking at him. Yeah. So. 
Well, I can't think of a better way to finish than on that note. Uh, Jim, thank you so much for your time today. Congratulations again on your success with Ben, and I wish you the best of luck for the future. Thanks, Jeff. You too. And good luck to everyone listening. And yeah, I'm happy to uh, be a resource for the future. And that's it for another episode. The TriDoc Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my interns. I'm Agent Johnson. This is Special Agent Johnson. Oh, how you doing? No relation. I'm, uh... I'm Jeff Sankoff, uh, the, the TriDoc. I'm in charge here. Not anymore. Those interns are Ian Johnson and Ben Johnson. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at tridocpodcast.com. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like for me to consider answering on a future episode? Send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com, or join the private Tridoc Podcast Facebook group on Facebook, and you can submit your questions there. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit try.coaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDark Podcast Facebook page, TriDark Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDark Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, remember 1121 and train hard, train healthy.